Hello, my name is Chris Cooper and welcome to the Busy Aviation Podcast. Today I'm going to talk a little bit about threat and error management and how that applies to general aviation. It sounds a bit dull, doesn't it? But what I thought I would do is relate it to a flight I recently did down to Norwich from uh, where my aircraft is based in Perth. It was a trip I did and do sometimes actually for work purposes, but it's a really good introduction to threat and error management and something that uh, I always look at when I'm doing a longer flight, particularly in my aircraft, because it's a single seat high performance aircraft. It doesn't have a great deal of fuel and it doesn't have a great deal of avionics. So threat and error management really is quite important when you're considering doing uh, what is something slightly unusual, i.e. not flying around your local airfield or just going to places that you're very familiar with. So you're probably thinking, why does Chris think he knows more about threat and error management and flying light aircraft to distant places than me? Well, probably I don't. However, I do have a commercial aviation background and a very strong safety slant to that. Uh, And I've always been involved in flight safety, threat and error events, investigations. So it's a subject that's really quite close to my heart. And I try and use it when I'm doing my own flying, uh, the flying that I do for fun. So what is threat and error management? comes down to three subjects there's obviously threats there's errors and a final outcome some people would be an undesired aircraft state so we must manage these threats and errors in our everyday operations our everyday flying our flying commercially or be up for fun so breaking this down what are threats well threats are events or errors that occur beyond the influence of the flight crew or in our case the influence of just us the pilot there's normally only one of us in a light aircraft So these threats can come from things like the weather, the terrain that we're flying over, maybe air traffic and airspace, which is really prevalent in today's uh, UK general aviation scene where airspace has become far more congested and complicated. It could be technical failures or it could be third party errors, something that someone else has done, air traffic or maybe the engineer that looks after your aircraft that will have a negative impact on your flight or your operation today. The threats can be broken down into three types. So there's those that are anticipated, those that are unexpected, and then there are latent threats. So let's just describe those a little bit more deeply. Anticipated threats are those that are expected or known. So we just mentioned airspace. We know that's going to be a threat to us. If we're flying around uh, the south of the country in particular, We know airspace is a threat. We know the likelihood of an infringement is a threat. Or adverse weather. We know that because we've looked at the weather forecast. Unexpected threats. Well, this could be a technical failure uh, without warning. So something that happens that we just were not expecting. And then there's latent threats. Um, How your aircraft was designed. So certain aircraft have certain traits, which makes them more liable to create a threat to us. For example, it may be that your aircraft has quite a high stall speed or that your aircraft doesn't like flying particularly slowly. I know, for example, in the uh, Vans RV3 that I fly, it will quite happily fly at low speeds, but it's not comfortable to fly at low speeds. It's much happier, say, at 120 knots 
than it is flying around poor weather at 80 knots. The aircraft just feels crisper, um, more responsive. It's not going to fall out of the sky at 80 knots, but it's something that I always bear in mind, that it's not an aircraft that I can particularly slow down and get some breathing space should I come up against one of these unexpected threats. So the secret of threat and error management in any sphere of aviation is being able to anticipate these threats so that you can deploy some form of an appropriate weapon, I would say, to counter that threat. We can group some of these into two different types. There's environmental threats, which incorporates all of the, uh, the ones we've just discussed, anticipated, unexpected, and latent. And that will be things like, obviously, the weather, air traffic, and airspace. But then there will be ones that are organisational. Now, organisational sounds more that it comes from the commercial arena, but it bleeds over into general aviation, hobby flying, leisure flying, call it what you like. And these are pressure, technical, maintenance, and performance. So when we talk about pressure, people always think of commercial pressure but from a general aviation point of view or leisure flying or hobby flying, we're not good at resisting our own self-implied pressure, the pressure to want to go flying, to go flying when we haven't been flying for a long time. We just want to get away from work and just go flying for the weekend. But the weather is poor or the aircraft isn't probably in its best condition. It's self-imposed pressure, organisational technical errors and maintenance errors, sorry, threats, I should be saying, uh, are common to both commercial and private aviation. In, for example, my case, I do the maintenance on my aircraft and I prefer it that way because I have a deep understanding of what the aircraft has had done to it, what needs to be done to it, what is acceptable and what isn't acceptable. And we talk about performance so I fly a very high performance aircraft. It has more power than it actually requires. So getting off the ground is never an issue. Landing, it uh, is a, a fairly easy aircraft to land in a short distance, but other aircraft not so. The aircraft may be underpowered. Uh, you may be taking off from wet grass and the performance has to be taken into account. And this is particularly the case where we're going somewhere unusual. We all get used to knowing our runways at our home base, how long they are, what influence they have on our performance, what the difference a crosswind will make. But when we're going to an airport, an airfield, a farm strip, which we've never been to before, we really need to look closely at our aircraft performance. So those were the threats. And then the threats can lead to errors. So the textbook definition of an error is defined as actions or inactions by the pilot that can lead to deviation from the pilot's intentions or expectations. So what does that mean in plain English? Well, that means something has happened, i.e. we've had a threat, we haven't deployed a countermeasure, and these now led to an unexpected deviation or something that we didn't expect to happen. For example, we've had to make a deviation around weather and we've now come up against airspace that we weren't expecting. It wasn't on our original plan route, but now we have to take that into consideration. So as you can imagine, these errors erode the margins of safety and the probability of something negative happening or an adverse event increases. So some of these errors can be spontaneous. So for example, if your aircraft, if you're lucky enough to have an autopilot, 
you may use it incorrectly. You may, for example, be given a clearance from air traffic and not follow it for some reason. They haven't come directly from the threat, but they've become a spin-off of that threat and are now an error. So we need to trap these errors before they can lead to what we described earlier as an undesired aircraft state. And an undesired aircraft state will normally result in a poor outcome. So to understand how to detect and respond to these in a timely manner, we need to have a plan before we even start so that these errors become inconsequential. A mismanaged error is one that is linked or induces an additional error. So if we think of the aircraft handling errors, these can be manual, they could be automated, or they could be driven by the systems in that aircraft. Light aircraft are now becoming much more complex than they used to be, and the systems, if poorly handled, can lead to errors, as in as much as automation can with the autopilot. There's then procedural errors. So these come down to our standard operating procedures, SOPs, as we know them in, in the commercial world. We don't think of having them in the private stroke leisure flying world, but we do because we all operate in the same manner generally. We have checklists, which become procedural errors, briefings. We often brief somebody else or we're briefing ourselves as to how we're going to escape from the aircraft, for example, in a uh, aborted or a discontinued takeoff. And it could be there in the documentation, for example, centre of gravity. Again, something that we don't tend to think hugely about in some aircraft. Some aircraft are very C of G tolerant, but then others are not. And it's something that a procedural area could come from. You've put too much baggage for this long trip uh, in the boot, which you wouldn't normally do. And that's now going to induce an error. And the last one is communication errors. So these are external to air traffic, obviously. Or if we're flying with somebody else, pilot to pilot errors, how we communicate with the other pilot, how we make sure they understand what our intentions are. So generally, all of the errors we've just discussed would be unintentional. You never set out to make that error or they could invoke a, an intentional non-compliance, i.e. you've decided to change one of your SOPs, change checklist procedure to contend with the error that you've just made. And this will lead to another, what we call in the commercial world, non-compliance, but it is actually just a bigger error. So right back at the beginning, I mentioned these undesired aircraft states if you're still awake and can remember that far back. Um, and so what are, a, well, they call them abbreviated UAS, but that stands for so many other things these days. So let's just stick with undesired aircraft states. What actually are these? Well, these are the results if we ignore the threat, make the error, and that's compounded into an undesired aircraft state, which can be flight crew stroke pilot induced. So that could be something to do with the aircraft position, its speed, You've configured the systems incorrectly, maybe forgotten to put the gear down, maybe forgotten to put the flaps up. A misapplication of the flight controls, you know, flying at low speed, as we mentioned, 
becoming closer to the stall. And it's all heading towards a reduction in safety margins. And this is generally always just before the incident or accident. For example, due to a miscommunication error, you've lined up on the wrong runway and come into conflict with another aircraft. Or, for example, you've forgotten to put the flaps down at a crucial stage and you've landed long. And now that you're in risk of running out of runway and having an overrun incident. So seeing as we like to classify everything, the undesired aircraft states can be put into three different categories. Uh, that's aircraft handling. That's obvious. Uh, ground navigation. So, for example, you are given taxiway instructions at an unfamiliar airport. And the example I will give is uh, going to Norwich for me, for example. It's a, a much larger airport than I'm used to. And taxiway instructions will probably be more involved and complicated. And it's much easier to have a taxiway infringement in that case. Or an incorrect configuration. In that example, what we discussed earlier, you're going away on a long trip. You don't normally put baggage in the uh, boot of your aircraft. And now you have an incorrect configuration for mass and balance. So once we're in one of these undesired aircraft states, we've been through all the traps. So we ignored the threat or we didn't see the threat. We've created an error. We haven't reversed the error or made a different plan. We're now in this undesired aircraft state. You need to be able to now quickly switch from error management to the undesired aircraft state management. And this, I think, is one of the most difficult things to do because we go down a rabbit hole. So for example, uh, let's go back to my aircraft I mentioned right at the start. It doesn't have a very big fuel tank. It's something that I am particularly aware of having spent most of my aviation career generally having enough fuel or somewhere to go to refuel. But for in this example, you've run low on fuel, but you get transfixed on the why. Why did it happen? How have I managed to run out of fuel? How have I managed to get myself in this position? Rather than sorting out where the nearest landing site is, where is the safest place to go for me and the aircraft and my passengers if I have them at that time. And it's this rabbit hole that we can all get into where we start asking the why rather than the how are we going to sort this out. And this transfer between uh, a switch from error management to sorting out the problem that we're now in is often what leads to a bigger or more severe incident or accident than would have happened if we'd have just sorted out the problem that has occurred. So this undesired aircraft state is transitional and that means it's between you sitting fat, dumb and happy uh, in a normal operational state and an outcome. And the outcomes are generally undesirable. For example, again, an unstabilized approach. We talk about this a great deal in the commercial world. We don't tend to concentrate on it as much because we have less complex aircraft, less energy in light aircraft. But for example, a stabilized approach, when it becomes unstable, we now need to make that transition between what was normal and what has become abnormal and how we're going to deal with that. 
So learning how to recognize this undesired aircraft state should be a part of our training for one, but also should be something that we think about before we actually go flying. So what weapons do we have in our armory or countermeasures to counteract the threat of errors? Well, these could include checklists. You know, light aircraft don't tend to be particularly complex. Uh, and a single air seat aircraft like mine is very simple. And I don't have written checklists, but I do have memorized checklists. Briefings, really, really important. Even if you're briefing yourself, it's a hard thing to do, but I try and do it. So I try and give myself a briefing for the takeoff. I try and give myself a briefing for what I will do should it go wrong during the climb out, for example. And then standard operating procedures so that you can have your own survival tactics, as I would call it. But it depends on your personality, but I actually like to pretend that I'm with somebody and I am briefing them. So in my mind, before I open that throttle, I've said to myself, if I don't get off the ground before this position on the runway, I'm going to close the throttle, I'm going to control the aircraft, I'm going to make sure that I don't over apply the brakes and if I need to I can turn off into the rough ground for example on the left. Now I've not said that to another pilot but I've said it to myself in my mind. Uh, I'm lucky in a single seat aircraft I quite often talk to myself and therefore yeah, it does help me have a plan. I have to admit I am not particularly good at it and sometimes I will open the throttle without doing it particularly at a familiar airfield my home base airfield because I have learned where the potential threats are, but that doesn't mean to say that there aren't some expect unexpected threats sat there waiting to bite. So nearly 70% of your flight really should be taken up with these countermeasures. That doesn't make flying sound a lot of fun, but I think a lot of us fly because of the challenge, and we don't want to be completely immersed in threats for our whole flight, otherwise there is no enjoyment and we'll become nervous wrecks. But part of flying is the ability to encounter a threat, not allow it to become an error, and have an successful outcome. Some of these, of course, could be down to the hardware you're using, the software that you're using. For example, uh, it's now become common to use a tablet uh, to use a product such as Sky Demon or Runway HD, which has made our threat and error management a lot easier, but also has mm, opened up a few traps for us. So we really need to think about this in three separate stages for our countermeasures, our weaponry, our armory, and that is in the planning, how we're going to execute it, and then, again, one of the things that none of us, well, that's untrue, um, I'm speaking for myself, um, is how we review what happened. Now, we tend to only review things when they go very badly wrong. But if you make an error and you come out with a countermeasure for that error during a flight, it's something that you should really just take a couple of minutes to think about, maybe on the drive home, to prevent that happening again. And maybe tell someone else because it's bound to be that someone else has probably done that before 
And if it just told you about it in advance, you might not have made the same error. And also reviews. I think reviews are really useful. In the commercial world, uh, we have a thing called LOSA. Rather than having a check flight, which, you know, is you've got a single engine piston rating in the UK, it's a biennial check of two years. So you can fly for two years without flying with anybody else as long as you remain current. And having someone else fly with you and be honest with you is really useful. LOSA achieves this by using normal line pilots who have been on a small training course to go flying with normal crews on normal flights and just watch what happens. And it's quite interesting that on these flights, uh, the amount of uh, errors uh, or threats that are picked up, which we don't normally see, for example, on a normal check flight where everyone is hyper alert to what is about to happen. So I suppose what I'm saying is go flying with a friend, go flying with somebody and, and ask them, say, you know, at the end of the flight, did I do anything there that you found unusual, unexpected or that you wouldn't do yourself? really can be very useful. Again, doesn't have to be someone more experienced than you, doesn't have to be an instructor, just has to be an independent observer. Obviously, someone who knows something about flying, uh, but it is something that is really helpful. Not easy to ask someone, sometimes not easy probably to accept criticism, but a really useful uh, tool in your armory. So how does this all apply in real life for a general aviation pilot? for those of us who love and enjoy flying all over the country. Well, I'll align it to the flight that I started talking about, and when was that, 20 odd minutes ago, about a relatively simple flight for me down to Norwich, from Perth uh, in Scotland, down the east coast of the country pretty much, uh, and across into Norwich International Airport. So one of the biggest threats that I will think about is the weather. I'm an IFR rated pilot in my professional life, but my aircraft is VFR only. It only has equipment and legality to fly VFR. And on this particular day, what was going to be a beautiful flight down and the weather looked superb for both Scotland and all the way down into East Anglia, turned out to be not quite so. It was just to the west, but we had uh, easterly to southeasterly winds, which was dragging in a lot of low cloud initially. It was forecast to burn off. And I decided when I arrived at my aircraft that I would wait. I would just wait for another two or three actuals and not apply any pressure on myself to get down the country. I was going to work, but I'd allocated enough time to make sure that I wasn't under any pressure to get there. In fact, if I didn't get there that day, it didn't matter. And I wouldn't want to do it any other way because once you start applying pressure on yourself as a leisure pilot to make appointments or having to be in a particular place at a particular time, this was the self-induced pressure that we talked about earlier. And it does happen. People apply a lot of pressure on themselves and will go flying when, for example, they're not feeling 100% and it doesn't make any sense. You just really have to say to yourself, why am I doing this? And I quite often say, although I love a challenging flight, I'm doing this for fun. And if I'm not doing it, it's no longer fun. I shouldn't really be doing it. 
So on this particular day, the weather at Newcastle was overcast at 800 feet, yet the weather at Teesside, which if anyone's familiar with the East Coast, is just down the road, and they almost have adjoining controlled airspace, was Cav OK. So I had the option to get away from Scotland where the weather was fine, get to a reasonable altitude for 5,000 feet and fly VFR uh, on top, although it's not the correct expression, of that cloud layer through Newcastle. So what was the threat to me about doing that? Well, one, I'm in a single-engined aircraft. I'm always very aware of that. And that overcast through Newcastle, through their airspace is over a particularly big part of congested uh, land, big town, big city. Um, and if the engine stops, I have nowhere to go. My didn't have the glide range to take me away to the clear air. So I just wanted to make sure that before I did that, I had an escape plan. And that escape plan for me was just to wait and just to wait for that overcast start to become broken, start to become scattered, which it did. I still had to go on top on the way down to Newcastle, but I knew that I would always have an escape option should the engine stop or should there just be a problem with the aircraft where I needed to get down to the ground quickly. The next thing I need to think about, and it may not be pertinent to all aircraft, is endurance, the fuel endurance. My aircraft only carries about 85 litres of fuel, uh, which is usable, and I burn about uh, 25 litres per hour once it's leaned out, but I plan on 30. I always plan on five litres an hour more because, again, it's just building in that slight margin for me. So in terms of fuel, I've got to think about, can I make it all the way? If I make it all the way to Norwich, do I have any options when I get to Norwich if the circuit is particularly busy, if air traffic wants to hold me off, if something else happens? And where can I get that fuel? Where are the refuel stops that are available on the way down? Um, for me, for example, I plan two or three stops around Yorkshire that I can always go to. And on this occasion, I use Beverly Linley Hill, which I can thoroughly recommend is a very lovely airfield uh, to go and get fuel and a, a wee snack or a break. Um, I can actually make it all the way to Norwich, but it only leaves me probably 30 minutes of fuel. And arriving at an unfamiliar airfield with 30 minutes of fuel is not what I want to do because that will lead me probably into an undesired aircraft state should my plan not go ahead. I'm unfamiliar with the route as well. It's I have done it before. I have flown uh, that route in particular before, but only once before. So I made sure that I was familiar with the airspace, that I was familiar the, with the airspace that I needed to cross. Leaving Scotland, there's hardly anything at four to 5,000 feet, uh, apart from around Edinburgh, but we stay well clear of that. And once we get to Newcastle, I need to cross controlled airspace. And the same again at Teesside. Now, I have to say that the Newcastle air traffic controllers are always incredibly helpful, and I have never actually been stopped, but I need to take it into account. Again, this hearts back to the endurance because I have a second plan of having to go around the airspace or turn around if I can't get through. And in particular, something again, that when we're flying from our local airfields, we do religiously during training is checking the NOTAMs. I know for a fact that some people don't, but we have no excuse anymore because on applications like Skydemon or Runway HD, that which you mentioned earlier, 
the node terms appear and they appear graphically so we can check them before we go because again a threat for me is there isn't a great deal of airspace around this part of Scotland where I fly and to be fair very little happens up here um, the airspace tends to remain uncongested there tends to be now very little military uh, flying and so it's easy to be lulled into false security that is not the case as a lot of you will know once you arrive particularly down the central spine of the country and into East Anglia Lincolnshire for example where NOTAMs pop up all the time for exercises now these will be things that aren't restricted airspace but there is a particular one that always seems to occur just north of Norwich where there's free-fall parachuting military at a disused airfield and it needs to be avoided. I don't want to be involved with meeting uh, people falling from the sky of, from I don't know what ridiculous height, 15,000 feet, for example, into a disused airfield and I think it's well worth flying around it but it only appears on NOTAMs and it's only marked as an exercise so I make a particular point of checking those and I check them again just before a taxi. Aircraft loading I mentioned, I'm being rather specific to my aircraft, but it's single seat, it does have a boot and you can put a reasonable amount of luggage in that boot. But my aircraft is generally rearward CFG, so I'm very careful about how I load the aircraft, what I take, try and fly light, try and tend to take not too much. And I make sure that I do a CFG again, Sky Demon uh, makes this particularly easy if you've set up your center of gravity. Uh, profile for that aircraft and you can just literally plug it in it will show you but don't try and convince yourself that it will be all right to fly with the cfg for example out the back of the aircraft because another threat will occur or another error will be made for example having to fly slowly and you could then fill the results of flying the aircraft outside of its cfg envelope and the other thing i look at as well when i'm going away particularly overnight, is the aircraft state. Do I need to take some extra oil? Is there anything on this aircraft that's probably needs doing before I take it away for three or four hours? Get that done before I go, and it gives me total reassurance. So the, the, the tools, the weapons in my armory that to counteract these threats, again, I mentioned the weather, I delayed, have an escape plan. I sometimes use a point of no return. Again, because of my aircraft type, I can only go so far and again between Perth and pretty much uh, north of Newcastle there aren't a great deal of airfields to go into which have fuel so a point of no return is always a, a reassurance for me that if I get so far I look at it and think nah I don't fancy this today I can turn around get back to Perth and still have enough time you know to do a couple of circuits or fly around the local area without needing to panic. Uh, route study uh, something that I was taught in the military and something again as well that we've become less good at i think since that we've started to use tablets uh, phones sky demon runway hd foreflight or garmin whatever you use so route study and what i particularly like about sky demon is is that the day before you can actually print off segments of the route as a half mil map and you can take a look at that what i do is cut mine up into a5 uh, slices and I order them because I'm a bit OCD onto my knee pad and as I go down the route I tear them off. So I have had 
Sky Demon stopped working due to GPS problems. Uh, and it's nice that you can just suddenly put your finger on that map. I have another chart as well, a proper chart, but this one's straight on my knee pad. I can have a look at it. But it means the night before, I can actually fly that route by just flipping through these A5 segments and seeing what I can expect on the way down and at various points. Uh, for example, joining the circuit at Beverly. Pool is right in front of you. And you can see, for example, that at Beverly, they don't like anyone joining live side. Um, so on the way down, before I even get there, I know that I'm probably going to have to do an overhead join or join from the dead side in some format. And on this case, what happened was on the way down, lovely trip across the top of Newcastle, become scattered around 800 feet so I could see the ground, but couldn't really see all of Newcastle. Got to Teesside, through the zone, no problem at all. And the weather opened up to pretty much Cav OK, although slightly hazy. So I let down onto the uh, wolds. But it didn't seem to add up because when I phoned Beverly before I set off, he said, oh, yes, the cloud base is four or five thousand feet, which it probably was at that stage. But by the time I got away and actually let down, the weather had deteriorated because that east coast har, as we call it in Scotland, the east coast low cloud, low fog, due to the southeasterlies and easterlies and all the moist air warming up, had moved into the east riding. And by the time I got through the wold and off the high ground, the cloud base was now down to probably around about 1500 feet, which was totally acceptable for VFR flight um, because it's into very low ground. However, it wasn't as comfortable as it should have been, but I knew that they did not like live side joins. However, an overhead join wasn't possible. So I just got on the radio early to Beverly Radio and he confirmed that there was no one in the circuit. And I said, fair enough, I'm just going to join left base from the live side. Are you happy with that? And he said, not a problem at all. And so by having that route plan in my mind, having read the poolies, I knew what I was going to do should the weather not be as good as expected. Had it been four or 5,000 feet, nothing would have been an issue apart from finding the airfield, which is not that easy at Beverly. Uh, loading, I mentioned that already. I fly as light as I can. I just take a rucksack and uh, I have to accept that uh, when I'm at work, I might not be as smart as I normally am, but people are used to that. And I just make sure that the aircraft is prepped. So I just make sure that everything is ready to go. Nothing should need doing when I get to my destination. Now, I've mentioned all these things when it comes to threat and error management, but I am still prone to failure. Um, I have probably around about 11,000 hours of flying, uh, most of that obviously commercial, but I still make mistakes. I still make errors. And none of what I said means that I am perfect. It is just my personal SOP, I suppose, is what I like to do to try and keep myself safe. I really hope this has been of some use. I say it is a bit of a dry subject and it's something that we probably don't like to think about too much, but the threats, the errors and how we manage them, how we transition between a error which has been compounded maybe and has now resulted in an undesired aircraft state, how we manage that UAS to a better and more successful outcome. Hope this has been a help. Um, do please take a look at our website at www.busyaviation.co.uk. 
And on the last podcast, I did promise that we were going to talk more about entering commercial aviation. I have got a guest coming on and my own technical skills when it comes to podcasting just need a little honing so that we can have an interview, but it is coming and we're going to talk to company which provide aircraft for hours building and how they can assist with your route to a commercial license. Thanks for listening. If there's anything else you'd like us to discuss or look into in more detail for these podcasts, then please again go to the website www.busyaviation.co.uk, use the contact form and we would love to hear from you. Take care.